And if you don't help them, they'll never ask for help again. I can guarantee you that. I didn't know God, but he knew me Mm -hmm. and he knew what was going on. The world tells us, hey, if you're trapped in a home with domestic violence, just leave. It solves the problem. Total baloney. And now, The Safety Zone. Welcome, folks, to another episode of The Safety Zone. I'm here with Mike McCarty. This is Melinda Ron, your host, and we're going to talk today about the incidences of of increased domestic violence. And Mike, we want to really just dive into this because it's becoming escalated in several states from what I understand, but of course, in your home state, especially. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I know we had Laura Berry on, what, six, seven weeks ago, who runs the Indiana Coalition Against Mm -hmm. Domestic Violence and was talking about, I believe she said there was a 130% increase in Indiana over 2020 in domestic violence homicides. But as you kind of look around the United States, we're not an anomaly. And I knew we weren't because I've partnered with the Indiana Coalition Against Domestic Violence for 25 years. And I knew Indiana was doing it right because Laura has been leading that for <laughs> that whole time. And so as I looked around, I saw communities like Phoenix has seen a 170% increase in domestic murders. And so you start to look around the country, it's definitely not, it's a trend. It's not an anomaly. And it actually is makes me sick to my stomach because I've spent 30 years. I started off helping launch what became the largest kind of community police-based domestic violence program in the United States. And we saved people's lives. We we reduced the domestic murders in Nashville, Tennessee by over half. That was 25 women and children killed every year. We reduced that immediately by more than 50%. And so when I look at these numbers, I'm like, people are dying unnecessarily. And I just can't sit back and and accept the fact that we're going to allow people to die because we have become so singularly focused on one health issue Mm -hmm. that we've kind of forgotten. There's a lot of other things happening in this world. Yes. And there's triggers, huh? When you think about the isolation through this past year, and and we're not talking a month of isolation, which can be in and of itself bad. We're looking at a a year and then you have the financial tensions. And is there underlying triggers or underlying themes in domestic violence? Is it, does it affect all kinds of people? Is it, is there just a DNA in it? How do you see that? In, in the work that you've done? That's, that's, that's a great question. It's almost like COVID is a perfect catastrophe for domestic mm-hmm. violence because many of the things you just mentioned, isolation, for abusers to be highly effective, they are very good at isolating. And you will see this, mm-hmm. man. You'll see it in the survivors, the women primarily living in these relationships, they can't see it from the inside out sometimes. They'll slowly, the abuser will cut them off from friends, from family, from anybody that might raise a hand and go, hey, something's not right here. And so you see this isolation tool used very early in relationships. Oftentimes, this mask is love. I want to be with you all the time. We're in love. Um, I can't get enough of you. I want to be with you. I'm, I'm being a little facetious there, but I mean, it's that newlywed, new relationship. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes, these very 
controlling behaviors. There's an intent behind those behaviors. I'm not saying if you're listening and your spouse wants to be with you all the time, that it means they're controlling. But as an abuser, they use that to isolate because the further I can isolate you from anybody, any access to any resource, and think about it for years, 20 plus years, as I've worked with advocacy programs all over the United States, for decades, we've been putting literature in women's restrooms, right? Mm-hmm. How do you give them information that they can get their hands on without somebody looking through their purse, looking over their shoulder, the women's bathroom? I've seen resources created where they can slip it inside their sock or their shoe, so they're not even putting it in their purse. Well, we haven't been going to restaurants for a year and a half. Things are just now starting to open back up. So both with child abuse and domestic violence, as the kids and people start to come out of these homes, some of them haven't had much contact with anybody for the last 18 months. And that can create a lot of issues too, can't it? Like when you were talking about even the kids and and going back to school, I mean, just the isolation itself has such an impact, I think, on mental health. For a normal child who's not experiencing any of this dysfunction and abuse at home, the isolation can have an impact. It had an impact on my kids. It had an impact on my well-being having my kids home nonstop, right? It's like hand signals. I'm on a call. Quit busting through the door when I'm having a meeting here in the house. And now all of a sudden, we're going to bring them back to school. And I just feel the guidance counselors, the social workers in the schools, they've got to have their eyes open. They've got to be looking. You're going to have children that have been experiencing abuse, emotional and physical abuse that has been completely undetected for the past year. But it comes out in strange behaviors. And I know we're going to talk a little bit about the impact of witnessing violence on children here in a little bit. and a compelling story. But the behaviors don't always come out as obvious signs. Right. Um, I've said this for years. It may be that little Timmy is acting out and really quite a little turkey is the way he's acting, but we don't always associate that behavior with a cry for help. We just associate it with this little kid is a pain in my butt. Mm. I don't like having to deal with him as a teacher. And so You've got all of this, and then we can add in financial, the impact financially from COVID. Exactly. The loss of jobs in the home. And and we all know that if there is a subject that causes stress among couples and marriages, it's finances. And so you, you blend that all in. And, and that's what's interesting to me because there's so many factors that go into it. And you can have mental health issues just from the amount of stress that's placed on people. And then you're right next to each other. You don't really have a, a, a break to get away. And when tensions run, anger, right, boils. And, and it seems like that there can be a pattern that maybe maybe people weren't necessarily in an abusive home, but is there a chance that you can kind of start seeing some of those patterns out of that severe strain and stress? Yeah. uh, One of the things that made the Nashville model and other models that were built on the same kind of foundation, San Diego had an incredible model and it may still have 
it is understanding kind of these red flags. And we've talked about these all the time, right? We talk about in school settings mm-hmm. and active shooter and students that bring weapons to schools. We talk a lot about red flags. Well, the same thing with domestic violence. We learned decades ago by studying cases where people or women and children were killed in domestic violence, there are some common behaviors that are present. It doesn't mean if you see one that it necessarily is going to result in a fatality and you really can't predict who is going to take it to the fatality level. But when you start to see multiples of these behaviors, then the escalation or risk is going up significantly. So when we started the program in Nashville, we had 1,200 police officers. One of the first things we did was we trained all 1,200 police officers in Nashville to understand when you're standing in a home as a first responding officer Mm -hmm. and you're seeing these things, and some of them are very obvious, threats of homicide or suicide. Well, imagine domestic violence without threats. Those are kind of the foundational piece of the control and power that's used in these relationships. Then you start hearing the word suicide. That's a scary word Mm -hmm. because what suicide tells me is if I don't care about myself, I sure don't care about you or, and it's a very murder happens in domestic violence, murder, suicide, very common in domestic violence. And that suicide is often a final act of control. Like I kill you, but there's no way I'm going to prison for you. I'm going to kill myself. So I control the outcome of this whole situation. So these these factors that exist, so maybe one of them is a larger trigger because of everything that's happened in the last 14 or 15 months. They talk about access to weapons. And I know who... You're probably saying, please don't say that right now. That is the biggest debate going on across the United States, right? The the whole gun debate. But I got a personal story for that. <laughs> okay. And, and, and but it, it, this is not something people pull out of a rabbit hat, okay? The reason exactly the Lautenberg Amendment, former Senator Lautenberg, kind of named after him, he authored the bill. The reason that amendment to get firearms out of the hands of domestic abusers exist is not because somebody said, you don't have a right to bear arms. You know, everybody should, Hey, everything we do, there's certain people that shouldn't be doing it, right? You are a habitual Mm -hmm. drunk driver. You don't have a right to drive a car anymore. We don't want you behind the wheel. Exactly. Our rights go with responsibility and we can lose those rights if the responsibility factor is not there. And the research has been very clear in domestic violence that access to firearms increases the likelihood of a lethal assault. I am not, I own weapons. I'm former law enforcement, but I have very moderate views on there are some people who should not have them. And it's based on absolutely validity. We know what yes. happens when things explode in a house and I can grab something where that goes at that point. And so there's just exactly there's just these factors. But one of the real precipitors that started to rise to the surface maybe a decade ago was this loss of employment, how that coupled with a lot of these red flags or signs of lethality, losing employment, especially for men, because our, our whole being is tied to what we do. 
I don't walk into a mm. cocktail party. Nobody asked me how I feel emotionally about myself. The men never asked me that. They asked me what I do for a living, right? Like, well, are you a provider? Exactly. It's just wired into the genetic exactly. men. And now I take that it's away. the DNA. Yes. Your DNA. And so- Yep. A lot of loss of employment in 2020. So just all of those things coming together at one time, just creating a perfect storm for what we're seeing. Yes. And I, I have to say, I grew up, and I know we've talked about this some, I grew up in a domestic violence situation. And I have to say, our situation, we always, my, my siblings, we always characterized it as the real underlying issue was rage, although control, of course, was a was a factor. In our situation, it wasn't like just the dad, to be honest with you, my mom and dad both were equal abusers. I mean, they were equal in the sense of, and I have to say that, it, no, we weren't ever touched or anything like that. But in our home, it was like walking on eggshells and you never knew when the fuse was going to be lit. And when that fuse was lit in, a, in an argument, and it could be something, by the way, very small or something very big, it escalated into rage and on both sides. And both of them would hit each other. Both of them would throw stuff, break furniture. I remember my dad's fist going through the wall. I remember my mom <laughs> with her fist. I'm not laughing, but I mean, sometimes yeah. I do think, well, with it's not, it was, it was equal and, and uh, my mom fist and my dad. And, and it was, and it was strange because my mother really was kind of a country bumpkin. And she, we always kind of felt like it was in our family, Jekyll and Hyde. And years later, there, there were some mental illness issues, but I'll tell you as a child, I have a brother and sister 10 years older than me. So I was the five-year-old and whenever these would escalate, the teens are in their rooms, the doors close and just tell me, I'm like, five, go to your room. Terrified, terrified. I can tell you the emotion that I always felt was fear. I was afraid they were going to kill each other. I was afraid that maybe we, it, we were going to get injured. And that was as a five-year-old. And I, there's no doubt in any of our minds that if we had had guns in the home, we wouldn't be there. Because when, when we would see this, when you got into a rage, there's no self-control. There is no, you're not even thinking straight. And we would see it. It was all driven by the emotion of rage. And it was kind of like a duct tape cover kind of a thing. And I thought, you know, if we had had guns in the home, there would be no thinking. I, I, it makes it easier for someone, especially in a rage, to do something that's lethal than relying on your bare hands for a better lack of words. But for all of us, I think with the three siblings, the, the two big things that we struggled with even going through in life was fear. Fear was a very big one for me. And in conjunction with that anxiety and anger, because this is what you lived. These were the, and there were good times too. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't always that way, but it was enough that way that it was just like living in a volatile thing. But I have to say from the faith perspective, just for anyone listening, that God is able to do things far above and beyond what we'd ever think. And interestingly enough, and this may sound bad, but my parents ended up getting divorced which for me was actually a relief because peace 
with, with, with them not being together, there was some peace. And, but through that, that was how my dad, my dad started going to church, the divorce and long story short, that led to his total change in behavior and in, in thinking. He started taking me to church. I became a Christian and that changed things. The whole family, my siblings, my mom, all of us ended up becoming Christians. And, and I can tell you when I look now at my siblings, kids, or when I look at family in general, we've got a couple of, I got a couple of nephews that are pastors. There was a break in that cycle. And for us, I would contribute that to, to the Lord and to knowing that transformation that God can indeed do anything. Now in saying that I struggled for many years with anxiety and, and with fear. So it wasn't just this saved and oh boy, you know, I mean, God transformed, but it it was, I think for emotion wise, it took time. And, and then we did discover later on that on my mom's side, that there, there was a mental illness that ran through an OCD and anxiety and stuff and that a lot of the family had. So it was interesting, but that in the, in the, the layout of the land, it's neat to see now health where there wasn't health. And so there is hope. But I'll tell you the impact on kids, because it's not a normal background. And when you're cowering in fear, it says a lot, doesn't it? But I would actually look forward to going to school because it was a reprieve mm-hmm. yeah, for sure. <laughs> from, being in, from yep. being in the home. And just on another side note, in, on the faith element, I was five and I just always had vivid memories. We were not a church family. We didn't go to church. Nothing was ever mentioned about God, values or various things there. But I had, and I didn't even know at the time, I had one of these huge children's Bibles. And I mean huge. It's like one of those coffee table type (laughs) books with pictures. Mm -hmm. I mean, as a five-year-old, I could barely lift the thing, right? But I'm telling you, Mike, when my parents would start in and you would hear the screaming and yelling and you'd hear things thrown, I'm in my room under the covers in my bed with a flashlight with that children's Bible. I really didn't know what it was, but I always opened it up. There was a picture of Jesus holding a bunch of little kids. And I knew I liked that guy. He was nice. And it, I would fall asleep with my hand on that picture because it was so peaceful. And so years later, when I became a Christian as an older child, I remember sitting in church and thinking, that's who he is. <laughs> Because mm-hmm. I didn't know, but yet it brought me comfort. Yeah. Interestingly enough, I didn't know God, but He knew me, mm-hmm. and He knew what was going on. And and I th- honestly think He protected us. But I I would be a, a very big advocate of in our home, very thankful that there weren't guns or that you know, my parents weren't hunters or anything like that, because there just was they were emotion. There was no emotional regulation whatsoever. It was just run amok. Wow. You, you lay the foundation for so many aspects and almost want to walk them back from where you just kind of stopped. You know, how many times I've talked to or intervened with a home and survivor, abuser, tell me uh, the kids don't know what's going on. The kids are oblivious to this. These things happen. They're not out there. And then I talk to the kids, right? And the kids are cowering in their room. They're hiding in closets. I learned very quickly when we had, especially when I got called in as a detective, I mean, these were hugely escalated cases, but I searched the house. I had officers search the house. We have found kids hiding in closets, under beds. You get focused on the 
the crime that has happened here. And so you talk about the rage and mm-hmm. the, I will say there, there's hope because these abusers can change if they choose to change. And this is what I don't right. know about 2020 as well is very well-structured batters intervention programs can be successful. It's not whether or not the facilitator is awesome. It's whether or not I, as the abuser, really want to make some changes. And I've met men who really wanted to make some changes, who thought they had mental health issues and realized Mm -hmm. they had control issues. So much of the rage really is, this is not out of control behavior. Abusers are some of the most in control people I've ever met. The rage oftentimes is to get you to comply. You think I'm out of control. I may take the next step. I had, you mentioned kind of punching the wall. And I had, mm-hmm. I got photos I use a lot of times when I'm speaking. And I've got one that I took where he had broken into her house and they had separated. So the violence escalates during separation. Why? I have just lost control. So Mm. the world tells us, hey, if you're trapped in a home with domestic violence, just leave. It solves the problem. Total baloney. It increases the risk of being killed by 75%. So that's why women go back. It's not because Mm -hmm. they love these guys. They do. Oftentimes they do. It's so intertwined with so many different things, but they're not going back to protect them. They're going back to protect themselves. And and we don't even understand what we're seeing. And I would train officers when you step into these homes, if you weren't raised in a home where you saw violence, if you haven't been in a relationship, you better check your view of normal at the door. Because if you're trying to filter normal with what you're seeing here, it'll make no sense. None whatsoever. Exactly. And there's no doubt our, (laughs) our childhood. And and I have to say, because I was the, the youngest, my, you know, brother and sister, nine, 10 years older than me really probably had even more of the brunt because they, they were divorced when I was nine. And, and honestly, and again, sounds bad, but my, my dad was bitter about it, but I have to say he, but he was at peace. Um, I guess my mom, my mom, I, and I love my mom dearly and she's in heaven and thank the Lord, right? For changes and what God can do. But I'll tell you, I, I would often tell people, I mean, I think I had more of the fear of mom than I did my dad. My mom was, was just as much in that throw and sometimes even more so. Mm. Um, so that may sound odd because I know we're used yeah. to it being males, right? Mm-hmm. But it can happen on the other side of the strain too. And but just this the whole concept, like you said, that the kids and each kid handles it differently. Mm-hmm. My sister, who's the oldest, she was always the one to try to be the peacemaker. When it escalated, of course, she ran ran to her room, but she would be the one trying to talk to them. She would be the one. <laughs> ready to dial on the phone, right? The police, if it was, mm-hmm. you know, really bad. Yes, we had that too. My brother would go to his room, put on his headphones and blast his music really loud and just wall himself off. I would hide. I would either be under the covers, under my bed, or as you said, in the closet with with my book with the nice man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't know what it was for, for peace. And it is interesting how the different kids, even later in life, my sister still is a peacemaker. My sister is still the type 
to calm get the situation calm quickly before uh-huh. it happens, right? Yes, yes, yes. So it's just interesting to see the factors of how each kid too handles it. Well, and how it impacts them as they become older and adults. I've got a friend that spent 35 years in law enforcement. He's a big guy, Marine. He's the toughest of the tough. And toward the end of his career and after he retired, I would bring him in to speak to police officers in the as they went through the academy when they were young and impressionable. I wanted them to understand what they were going to face when they walked out of here, how what they did impacted a child, how sometimes when I walk into a house, the actions I take as a police officer can send a clear and compelling message to a child. Does that mean when I put the handcuffs on a parent and take them out of that home that it four-year-old child, a seven-year-old child's going to go, oh, I got it. You're holding my dad responsible for inappropriate behavior. No, they may cry, but they're going to process. But I need to explain to them, hey, I don't want to take your dad to jail. I hate that I have to take your dad to jail. Your dad can't hurt your mom. You're not allowed to put your hands on people. They may not understand Mm -hmm. it right then, but I'm going to get them some help. We had counselors on our team. We had social workers. They would intervene. They would work with these children long-term. But the opposite message I too often that gets sent to the children as I walk into the house, I think she tells me standing there and she's been hurt that she doesn't want to do anything. And I'm like, well, if you don't want to do anything, then I'm not going to do anything for you either. And I turn and walk out the door. What have I just taught that child? I just taught that child, hey, whatever's happening in your home is normal. It isn't fun. It's scary. It causes anxiety. However, it's okay. Mr. Policeman walked in and didn't do anything about it. And so how we approach this and how the children's process it. And I'm looking at, we've had these huge increase in domestic violence, but we've had huge increases in pure violence in general. Yes, I mean, look at New York City, look at Chicago, look at my home town of Indianapolis. I can go on and on. Why waste our time listing every city that's seeing this? What these leaders cannot and do not have the capacity to understand is how closely connected all violent crime is with domestic violence. These kids that are committing violent crimes, they don't grow up in healthy, happy homes. They don't. Power and control. The most power I can have over somebody is to abuse and kill them. The second most power Mm -hmm. I can have over them is to rape them. You know how much sexual violence we investigated in domestic violence? Tons. Because it's a control, it's a power issue. And now we see these kids that are shooting, these kids that are hurting, these kids that are joining gangs, these kids that their first reaction is to hurt somebody physically. And you got these leaders in these communities going, well, I don't know what we do. Well, I'm telling you what you do. You get these homes healthy. And my question is, is yes, the mayors yes. are going to do it. Your government leaders can't do it. They don't understand it. They won't move fast enough. Where's the church? Where's the yes. church? So much of the church doesn't even appear to want to understand how to help the families because they see it as a male-female issue, or they're just so ignorant of what it is. They just say, we're going to yes. pray about it. I'm going to tell you what, if I get diagnosed with cancer, I want you to pray about it, but I want a freaking good doctor. Okay. I'm looking for the best oncologist on the planet because God's answer to prayer might be some kind of human intervention. That's right. That's what drives me nuts with the church. It's like, wake up. The victims are going to turn to you so much sooner than they're going to turn to the police. 
And if you don't help them, they'll never ask for help again. I can guarantee you that. And I tell you, it's a disconnect in in many or some of our churches of just that disconnect of really being community. In other words, not just preaching and it's a bunch of numbers out there and that's it. There's no connection. And I know for bigger churches, it's very hard and, and they work, they strive to have that community and they do it for various different ways, but, but it's really fostering that environment, like you said, and, and, and it quite honestly, yeah, it's rolling your sleeves up and getting into the fray. And maybe that isn't a comfortable thing, but to have a healthy family, people need help. And like you said, they have to also want to have that help. There's no doubt about that. But the three of us knew, even I knew as a five-year-old, I mean, I couldn't label it like you said, but I knew this wasn't supposed to be this way. Yeah, now, yeah. I, did I have a picture of a right one? No, but I knew this couldn't be right. This wasn't the normal type of thing. But the churches, and I think many churches understand it, and they know how important the family is. But I think also, like you said, I mean, I think that just that disconnect is just really having to get involved in people's lives and, and being a real community. A, a church cannot respond to this until they've been equipped and trained. Like it is yes. unlike any other crime that exists anywhere in the world. If somebody robs me, I always want to prosecute. If somebody hits my car, I want them held accountable. If somebody breaks into my house, you don't show up as a police officer to a bank robbery and have the customer service rep go, um, we don't want to prosecute. We just want to forget it happened. No. You would be like, we got a mental health issue or we got somebody that's helping them out. But yet the most likely call we send police officers to what they deal with in terms of volume more than any other call is a domestic violence incident. And they don't know what they're dealing with. And the church certainly doesn't understand why the, when we talk about generically, because the vast majority of this is perpetrated by men against women. That does not mean yes. that men yes. cannot be victims. They absolutely can. But when we look at this, if you don't understand it, you don't know how to respond mm-hmm. to it. You can't respond to this just by guessing. You're going to get it wrong right. every time. But if the church would mobilize, and I think 99% of faith-based people want to help. Now, I also get very disheartened when I'm seeing just the constant, maybe I should never go on Twitter again, okay? But I'm, I, 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 see, <laughs> I, I see survivors being demonized within the faith community yes. because they are going after abuse. And that, mm-hmm. to me, man, that is the, that is the, that is unconscionable to think we are going to demonize somebody right. who's been abused who is coming out against it to solve it. This is a major, major problem in the United States. We were making yes, strides and we have taken 10 steps backwards in the last year and a half. And we've got to get this thing back on track. And, and we really need the church to step up. And I'll speak till I'm blue in the face to give you what you need to do to react to this and, and intervene and help. But you just, you got to have some tools to do it. You can't do this on your own without understanding it. Yes, absolutely. Mike, I know we're running out of time, but I just want to say if you are a pastor listening or a church leader, volunteer at church and 
you're concerned about this issue and you see that there's a need for training or a need for just maybe you don't even know where to start, right? You just want to be able to do what's right. We just really encourage you to reach out. Mike, what would be the best place that they could reach out to or how they can reach out? You can go on our website, safehiringsolutions.com. My contact information's on there. Heck, my direct dial telephone number, 317-451-4070. Call me. I may not answer if I'm busy, but you'll get my voicemail and I'll call you right back. We'll help. We'll point you in the right direction. I know people everywhere in the United States in this movement that can help you as an organization get the training you need to help families. Yes, absolutely. And and we're appreciative of our churches. We do know that there are churches that are that are involved. And I've been at one and as an adult and have seen my pastor go in and take the guns out of the homes, you know, himself and while he's counseling and working with them and, and helping them. And so we know there's there are certainly churches that are doing that, but and we know that there there's a lot of just trying to figure out how to handle things in our society too. So we just encourage you to reach out, we encourage you. We know that you know the importance of the family. So we wanna see healthy families, healthy churches, healthy communities, right? So thank you for Mike for another uh, important podcast and thanks to our listeners and we will see you next time. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by Safe Ministry Solutions, which offers a 360 security solution that keeps your church, your congregation, and your ministry safe.